When I look back on the on the last you know 40 years of my adult life, the times when I've had the most growth have been when I have the closest relationships, when I have people around me who share my outlook that you know Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and and then we encourage each other, we speak truth to each other, we challenge each other, and and yet we love each other. You know, there's no backing away from having those hard conversations or from dealing with conflict with each other. And, and when we can do that, honestly, truthfully, respectfully, I think that there's a way that it just buoys us up. And, you know, it's not just feeling loved, it's feeling supported, it's feeling connected, it's feeling like I don't have to do this alone. That was Dorothy Greco, and this is the Things Above Podcast. Well, today's guest for a Things Above conversation is Dorothy Littell Greco. Dorothy is an author. She writes about marriage, parenting, leadership, and the intersection of faith and contemporary culture for Christianity Today, Missy Alliance, Mops, and many other publications. She's a member of Redbud Writers Guild and the Pelican Project. Dorothy's also worked as a professional photographer for more than 30 years. She and her husband, Christopher, are passionate about helping others walk in health, wholeness, and joy. Dorothy loves kayaking, traveling, and concocting gluten-free desserts. And you can find more about her work on her website, www.dorothygreco.com, or by following her on Instagram at Dorothy L. Greco, or Facebook, Words and Images by Dorothy Greco. So, Dorothy, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. I've been looking forward to this conversation for a long time. Oh, that's great. Well, now you spoke at the Apprentice Gathering, uh, the last one, I think the last one we had a couple of years ago, because we paused for a year with the pandemic, but I heard wonderful things about your workshop. So thank you for doing that, for coming to good old Wichita. I just, I'm so glad that you came to that and taught at that. Yeah, it was a very fun experience. Like doing an intensive with married couples is you, you can really go deep fast. And I think that everybody was very willing to follow me. So I, I really enjoyed it. Oh, that was great. Well, just a shameless plug to our listeners that uh, a reminder that we do have the Apprentice Gathering coming again this year, September 23 through 25. Great lineup of speakers and workshop leaders. So check that out at ApprenticeInstitute.org. Once again, shameless plug for the Apprentice Gathering that will happen again this fall in September. So, Dorothy, I ask every author I have on the podcast the same question, which is, why did you write this book? Well, the short, non-nuanced reason is because my husband, Christopher, and I needed it. The, actually, the year before I started writing Marriage in the Middle, three of our close friends' marriages blew apart. And they had all been married for more than 25 years. They were all believers. They all had lots of kids. And that really shook us because I think mm. seeing it so close made us realize, you know, we can't take what we have for granted and, and then caused us to, to press in and to think about how could we be more intentional. So the more nuanced reason for writing the book was threefold. One was I really wanted to name and normalize the many changes and crises and challenges that folks face in midlife. You know, like you feel like you're in a constant state of disequilibrium, absolutely. And you're not imagining things and you're not the only one. And that's part of why including interviews with diverse couples felt so important to me because then it's not simply my voice. And then two, I wanted to offer some biblically rooted, practical, but not formulaic ways to navigate the season. You know, the book is really a series of 
try this, see how it works. And, mm-hmm. and then finally, I, I really wanted to infuse the marriages that are in midlife with hope. You know, it is an incredibly difficult season. What we go through can be excruciating, and yet God is good, and he will give us whatever form of manna we need to get through our day. So those were kind of the three objectives that guided my mm. writing. Mm. Wow, that's fascinating. So for listeners, I didn't introduce the book. It's Marriage in the Middle. It's it's really a fantastic book, and and I I have been married thirty years, so it was perfect for me uh, to to think through and and boy you get personal and real and, and there's so <laughs> many things I love about the book, um, but I didn't know that was really some of the impetus why, but seeing seeing others sort of crash yeah. uh, does does wake us up to go wow, um, so here's an here's a, just a crazy little question. But, you know, a lot of us have heard through the years about the seven-year itch, mm-hmm. that marriages at the seventh year go through some trials. Is there any truth to that? Because you're an expert in this field. So I just thought, I want to ask Dorothy if that's any any truth to it. Or is it one of those things where people just have trouble around seven and they just, you know, equate it to the seventh-year itch? I'm not sure whether it would be specifically the seventh. For us, it was year 10. That was when we really hit a wall very hard. Um, I think maybe there's something about being together for that length of time that causes people to mm. stop and realize, oh my gosh, this thing that I was hoping would change maybe is not going to change. And and now what am I going to do? So there's mm. a, there's a, I guess, a, an opportunity for us to face reality in a new kind of way after we've been together for, you know, seven to 10 years. And then I think, again, we come back to that, um, you know, when we've been married for a long period of time. That makes sense. That answer really makes sense. No one's ever said it that way. But uh, yeah, I mean, after seven to 10 years in that time frame, um, we kind of do know each other by then. And I love what you said. If you, some things we thought they're going to change, right? Are they going to, they're going right. to get better. Right. My, my partner's going to stop this or start that or whatever. By year seven, you're starting to go, I don't think it's going to. Yeah. And maybe we need to work on it or whatever, but well, there's so many things I love about your book. And I'm so here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to ask a question at the end of each of my praises. How about okay. that? <laughs> okay. So here's praise number one. It has a ton of practical wisdom about such a huge topic. Marriage is a huge topic, especially for an age group that's often neglected in marriage books, mm-hmm. midlife and up. So my, my question is, why are there so few marriage books for this age and stage of marriage? I wish I could answer that question. That was actually one of the motivators to write the book because I thought, well, it's not already out there. Um, there are a few that that address it, but I think that they're a little bit more on the surface. One of one of the callings on my life, on Christopher's life, is to really be vulnerable. So we bring that into every speaking um, engagement that we have. Every everything that I write, I think that one of the the most common responses I hear from people is, "I can't believe how honest the two of you are." So. You know, bringing that to the table, I think, is is meaningful. And and oftentimes, my guess is folks assume that if you've been married for 10, 15, 20 or more years, that you know everything that you need to know, that there really aren't any ways that you can continue to grow. There's nothing that needs to change. And I guess my experience um, in, in coming out, you know, I'm 60 now, so I'm sort of at the tail end of midlife, is that this was an unprecedented season, that the challenges were unexpected, they were overwhelming, they felt in some some weeks, some months that they were nonstop, just one after another. 
Um, so rather than assume that folks know exactly what's going to happen um, and, and how to handle it all, my experience has been the exact opposite, that actually nobody really talks about this. And so to face these kind of challenges that cause so much de- disequilibrium, I think then that adds a la- layer of like shame or confusion on because we feel like, well, nobody's talking about this. So does everybody else know what they're doing? And I'm the only one. So we wanted to make sure in, in writing this book that folks knew they're not the only one. Mm-hmm. Okay. You've used a great word a couple of times now, disequilibrium. Unpack that one for listeners because you use it in the book as, as well. But what do you mean by that and how, to, how does it apply to this subject? Yeah, I don't know if any of your, I'm sure that some of your listeners are familiar with a BOSU ball, um, whether they have one at home or they use it at the gym. And it's essentially, it's like a, a big ball that's cut in half and the one, the half that's closed is hard. And you can either use it by standing on top of it so it's a little bit squishy or you can flip it upside down and then you, you know, have to work a little bit. When I started using the BOSU ball, I could do like three squats and then I would fall off and I'd get back on and I have to start again. And it occurred to me, it was, I think, right about in the middle of writing this book, oh my gosh, this is exactly what midlife is like. There's, you know, we think that we know what we're doing. We think that we're steady. But then as soon as we take our eyes off of something that's fixed and steady, we can just completely fall off or get dumped off, you know, and it, it, it involves an incredible amount of core or central work in order to use the BOSU ball well. So I think that's what I mean when I say disequilibrium. Things are changing rapidly. Our relationships are changing. Our jobs might be changing. The way we experience our spirituality might be changing. And if all of that has been fixed for a number of years, it can suddenly feel like, what the heck is happening? Mm, Okay. So I do some yoga and there's mm-hmm. well some of some of the sessions I do are balanced days. Yes. And I find out how wobbly yes. I, <laughs> I am in certain poses like oh, that's boy that tree pose. Uh, I'm wobbling today. So it's it's about balance then, right? It's about uh that inner core strength to deal with the the feeling imbalanced or the wobbly. Yes. Right? And, and, and seeing something, because for me, in order to do this, like what I had to do is find a fixed spot on the wall, not watch somebody else who was moving, but choosing something that is immovable, which to me, of course, is, is Jesus. It's my relationship with God because he mm-hmm. doesn't change. And, and that being fixed in that way and paying attention to where am I weak? Where am I off balance? And then a, making like fine adjustments all the time. That, that's that's midlife. Wow, you know what? Uh, so in in yoga, because it's I think it's probably a, a Hindi word, but it's the adrishti. Adrishti is that single point you look for on the wall mm. that keeps you balanced. So uh, I just I happen to know because I have a, a yoga teacher. And she's a Christian, but she uses the word yeah. you know find your drishti. Um, That's really I'm, interesting. When, yeah, and so yeah, but I love what you're saying because you know Jesus is the is the one who's stable. And hey, it relates to this podcast, right? Why why are we called to set our minds on things above? Because it brings us the balance within the disequilibrium of daily life. I just absolutely this podcast. Yeah, that, that was so subtle <laughs> that I dropped that in. Um, Vulnerability is great, and I I do think I'm so glad to hear that you know you guys made a vow to do that in your presentations, and the book certainly does it. And I just think it's boy, I don't know exactly how to describe it, but I know that. When it happens in the right setting, it just, it, it disarms. People feel okay to talk about, about something, you know, mm-hmm. when, when they're vulnerable. I had, a, I had a student 
years ago and when he was his first church appointment was in a small Kansas town and they had a, he was meeting with a bunch of older pastors and they were all pastors of local churches in the town and he was new to the group and they welcomed him in and one day they said um you know well we we sometimes like to share you know our our challenges and struggles and so they went around and shared things like you know sometimes i get angry at you know the my elder board and sometimes i get disappointed at <laughs> at the people in my church who aren't committed. And, did it. and I went on to this student of mine who really had learned about vulnerability and honesty. And he just went, I still wrestle with lust sometimes. <laughs> and he started just sharing his challenges. Yeah. And, uh, and you know, I, I'm sure you know where this is going, Dorothy, yeah. but uh, suddenly all these guys just opened up because yes. it was like, okay, I guess it's safe. We can talk about, and your book does such a good job of that. And I think the the choice to have um, these interviews with these these couples who are also really vulnerable, it, it it helps with that as well. Well, my second question on this, or second praise really, is your book isn't isn't shy in addressing the the real challenging things, unmet expectations, the deep disappointments, the the hard issues. I mean, you just don't avoid them at all. No troubles with our children, mental health issues, ailing bodies, aging parents, employment. I mean, it's just you cover so much. And you even talk about menopause, right? Mm -hmm. The change for women and lower testosterone and related issues for men. And so it's like, wow, I mean, you really get real. I, I think you've started to answer this, but say a little bit more about why you chose to get into the nitty gritty. Well, I think that if we stay on the surface, it doesn't really serve anybody. And whether that's, you know, in the context of a confession, you know, we can make a confession along the lines of, I spent too much time on the computer last night, or we can say, I spent three hours watching pornography last night while you went to bed. So, you know, which one is going to have the bigger payoff? Um, the second one, the mm -hmm. more, I think the more specific and the more honest we are about where we are in life, about how we struggle in life, about the doubts that we have, about the things that, where we've failed, it does give other people permission to also be honest and to also say, yeah, me too. Um, and there's something profoundly powerful about that. It, I think that it, it joins us together. It helps us to not feel so alone. Um, and honestly, I think that, that if we fail to be that vulnerable in those kind of ways, I don't think that we're going to grow as much as the Lord means for us to grow. I really do think that there's something mm. about that level of disclosure. Not, I'm not talking about being inappropriate by any means, but really being honest about the places where we're having a hard time. Um, not only does it invite other people in and help us to be known by them, um, but in that process, when somebody knows us and they know our sins, they know the places where we struggle and they still love us, there's something about that that is just really, really powerful and I think can help bridge um, some of the places where we may, you know, routinely struggle. Yeah. Oh, I, you know, I think one of the keys to what you just said is, and they still love us. Yeah. You know, I think, I think. In my experience, I think that's the case. I, I, uh, I have a friend of mine who's a therapist. I asked him this question because I read an article that said that, now I, I want to get your thoughts on this too. This article said that if, if a person goes to a counselor or therapist, which I recommend, it's mm -hmm. wonderful, right? That's a great thing. But this article actually um, made the assertion that if a person has two or three close friends that they can really disclose to who will stand by them and walk with them and that sort of thing, that they'll actually get more help from that. 
And the reason why is because um, as wonderful as the therapy or relationship is, it is still professional. Like you're paying them. They don't have to love you. They don't have to, they don't have to be in solidarity with you, like for you, like it's a professional relationship. Again, not critical. I want everyone go to therapy, but, but, um, but yeah, but I thought that's really fascinating, but I think it's because of what you just said. It's, it's, uh, in those kinds of settings when you can be vulnerable and people demonstrate that love that in a way, maybe a therapist can't, I don't know. What do you think about that? It's kind of a radical idea. It is a radical idea. And I guess that I I have two thoughts. One is, you know, for those of us who have trauma backgrounds or who are dealing with something that's really severe and very consequential. So PTSD, uh, addictions, I'm not sure that a friendship alone can get us where we need to go. You know, there's so much deep work that needs to happen that I think having those sort of committed relationships at the same time that you're going to counseling might, you know, bring the best payoff there. Mm. Um, but in, I do feel like in the t- when I look back on the, on the last, you know, 40 years of my adult life, the times when I've had the most growth have been when I have the closest relationships, when I have people around me who share my outlook that, you know, Jesus is the way, the truth and the life. And, and then we encourage each other. We speak truth to each other. We challenge each other. And, and yet we love each other. You know, there's no backing away from having those hard conversations or from dealing with conflict with each other. And and when we can do that, honestly, truthfully, respectfully, I think that there's a way that it just buoys us up. And, you know, it's not just feeling loved, it's feeling supported, it's feeling connected, it's feeling like I don't have to do this alone. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And it's, yeah, that that's the big thing, right? You don't, you're not having to do it alone. And, and particularly, like you said, if it's a group of people who share your faith experience too, because I found that's, that's so important as well. Well, let me ask a question. And this one comes from our mutual friend, Dr. Jeff Bjork. And I said, you know, what would be a good question that would be more broad, not just about specifically the book, but what, you know, all the stuff that Dorothy knows about marriage in general. And this is Jeff's question. He he says, how would your idea of of telos or telos, uh, which is the end, um, you can unpack the word a little bit, but how would your idea of telos be useful for people of any age, whether married or single or divorced or widowed or what it, what it is, how would that idea apply to that? So maybe you should start with telos, right? And then, and then talk about how it applies in general. Yeah. And maybe I'll just back up for 30 seconds and say that Jeff is one of those people. He has been one of those people in my life since high school who has been a consistent and faithful oh, wow. friend. So yeah, hat tip Me to too. him. Um, so tell us is a Greek word and it's not one that many of us, you know, will fold into our language, but what it essentially means is the process of moving towards an end goal. It's, it's an intentional process. So it means like our ultimate destination, how we get there and how we treat those who are with us. It's, it's, if you think of it, it's like a guiding purpose, um, and I think telos is important because we, at least in America, we are very driven. We're very focused. We have uh, a lot of goals about many things, including our finances, our professional work, maybe our fitness goals, our 401k. But we don't always have that same kind of focused intentionality about where do we want to go as a married couple. And obviously, you don't have to be a married couple to take on this mindset, but it's thinking about who do I want to be ultimately, and how is every part of my life working together to get me there? 
you know, it's a, it's an organic thing. So if your telos when you're in your twenties might feel very different than your telos when you're in your fifties, but most of the time there's a through line. There's something that's connecting who we are and where we've been, because I think that that's how God works in our lives. You know, he, he redeems every single thing that has happened to us. That's been difficult. He gives us a reason. He gives us a motivation. And then he calls us out and says, you know, will you partner with me? Will you be part of this endeavor that I want to, um, bring into fruition during this time period in this place. And that could be as simple as working at a food pantry one, one day a week and getting to know the people in your neighborhood and, you know, just making relationships with them. It could be volunteering at an animal shelter. And it could also be something more substantial, like, you know, moving overseas and feeling like you want to develop relationships with people from a Muslim culture. So there's many, many different telos. And, and each one of us, I believe, have our own unique telos. And then we have our, our telos that um, as a married couple we have together. And my, my feeling is that every single couple can uniquely serve the greater good in some way. Um, I don't think that our telos should simply be about having a healthy marriage. Like that's great all for that. But I think that there's more. And I think that the Lord is calling us to more. And I think that he calls people who are single, people who are widowed, people who are divorced. Like we all have a calling that the Lord is asking us or inviting us into and how we respond to that. And over the years is what our telos looks like. Mm. And how do you discern that? How do how would a couple, let's assume, as you said, obviously having a good marriage, that's sort of a, a basic. Uh, but beyond that, how would a couple discern what their telos would be beyond that? Yeah, I think that one of the ways to look at it is where do you come alive? What brings you like tremendous mm. joy um, as you do it together? So uh, in this in the book, I tell this story that years and years ago, maybe 25 years ago, we were newly married. Um, Christopher and I took a team of people from our church into a local prison for Easter. And it, we just so enjoyed it. We both came away and thought, I want to do that again. Um, unfortunately, we were a little bit too honest in that time period, and they kicked us out of that prison and said we could never come back. So <laughs> I, I have the unique... Um, Yes, I'm not sure that many people would be able to say that they were kicked out of prison and were never going to be allowed to come back. But we have since moved and we're closer to a different prison. So as our youngest child went off to college four years ago, we both thought, okay, it's time. We can do this again. And so up until COVID started, we had been volunteering at a local men's prison and doing a chapel service. You know, it's a very small thing, barely touches the needs that are there. But when we do it, we both feel very alive. We feel very connected to each other. We feel very connected to the people we're serving and we feel very connected to God. So I think that those are all ways that we can sort of discern. Um, what are your skills? What are your abilities? Uh, you know, it's another thing that I talk about in the book that my husband and I are both really pretty terrified of, of power tools that have spinning blades. And for me, that's because my father cut off his finger once and he almost cut off his arm a different time. And so I just have a very profound fear of them. So we are not going to be volunteering at any, you know, Habitat for Humanity building project. But, you know, we are 
love going into the prison. We love having conversations with people about their marriage, about their sex lives. We can really go deep and that doesn't phase us at all. So again, it's, you know, what are your abilities? Where do you feel most alive? Um, and sometimes it's where do the two of you have the most conflict? Because there are sometimes that there's like a deep truth in there that um, if you don't, if you haven't like processed through all the issues and worked through the conflict, you might be blocked from it. But occasionally we have seen that is, is the very place where you have the most conflict is the place where the Lord is calling you. Mm-hmm. I love that. That is so cool. I, I don't, I never, I'm going to have to think about that and talk with my wife about that. Um, so you, you brought up sex. We have to talk a little about that, I would think. What is the secret to sexuality and marriage? Is there a, is there a secret or what is the what would you say is the most helpful thing that you've learned? Well, in the book, I talk about eight characteristics of good sex. So would it be okay to just share those? Please, yeah. Um, the first, I think, is oneness. And to me, that's, you know, Genesis 2. The two shall become one. Uh, good sex should help us to feel closer to each other. So after we've made love, there should be a sense of feeling more intimate with each other than before. And uh, Christopher West in his book writes, sex isn't a reaffirmation of our marriage vows, which I think is just such a powerful way Hmm. for us to think about what intimacy is. And then second, it would be mutual. Like there's no coercion. Um, It needs to be desirable for both people. You know, Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 7, where he talks about um, the husband and wife giving each other authority over our bodies and fulfilling each other's needs. And that was, you know, just as radical then as it is today. Um, But I think that that's a really important component of mutually fulfilling sex. The, The third I would think of is sacrificial, that we, if we care as much about our spouse's pleasure and about how they're doing emotionally, are they feeling connected um, as our own, that really increases uh, the depth of marital intimacy. Exclusive, you know, maybe an obvious one, maybe not, forsaking all others, that marital sex needs to be completely exclusive. Um, five would be honoring and respectful, that we respect each other's limitations. A no means no. When you have a spouse who has a trauma background or is in the middle of depression, you know, we have to really honor their journey. Um, and there are times when we then have to just steward our sexuality uh, during the time, the story that opens um, Marriage in the Middle my husband was really depressed. We didn't, I don't think that we realized it until later, but he was depressed for about a year. And in that season, he really was not interested in being intimate. And and that was really hard for me, but I had to love him well, meant to not push him and to not coerce him and to simply say, yeah, whenever you're ready, I'm here and let's figure out how to connect in other ways. Obviously pleasurable, you know, the way that God created our our bodies, maybe in particular a woman's body, I think is is indicative of the fact that he cares that it was that it's pleasurable, which I'm so grateful. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that was an important component. Vulnerable, there's no hiding, no secrets. We're totally present with each other. You know, we're not calling upon pornographic images. We're just present to the person who's in front of us. And as we age, that vulnerability is increasingly important because our bodies are changing. You know, the the body that I now give to my husband is not the same body that I gave him the night that we were married 30 years ago. And, you know, that's just reality. Mm-hmm. And then finally, healing. I think that when all the other characteristics are in place, marital sex can bring 
really deep healing to our wounds and not just sexually related wounds. You know, early on when, when Christopher and I were married, there were times when after we made love that I just burst into tears and I didn't even know what it was about, but it was as if somehow the intimacy and the vulnerability, the care that he was showing me allowed me to access some really deep feelings and it was beyond words. Um, but I do see that it was that, that those times were really um, very deeply healing for me. So I'm sure that doesn't answer all your questions, but I think that when those eight characteristics are in place, that it really does uh, make a big difference in terms of how our intimate life, um, how we experience it. Right. And I noticed you didn't talk about technique or mechanics. You know, you didn't, it was all, it was much more sort of a, a body and soul kind of the, the, the eight things that you mentioned, which I think get at that because we are, we are in souled bodies, right? We are are, are, that's who we are as persons is very real and, and, a, and a huge part of sexuality. I say that in a culture where sexuality has become more about, you know, parts and, yes. and yeah. techniques and whatever for, yeah. Well, you know, there's there a part of what you just said in that answer that made me think about something I wanted to ask you as well. Um, so my, my parents were married for over 50 years. Mm. And when I asked my, my dad, I think they had just passed the 50 year mark. And I just said, so what is this? And they had a good marriage. Um, they they didn't fight a lot. Uh, they seemed to really love each other, and, and so it was a. I got to see that, which is beautiful. But um, but I said, you know, what what is the you know the key to to a good marriage? And he said respect. Hmm. And I was so bummed out at that answer. I thought <laughs> that is a lame answer, Dad. I said I, respect. What are you, Aretha Franklin here? What do you I mean? What do you, how how did you? I wanted it to be some deep, you know, answer something more romantic. But I said, "Well, unpack that." And he goes, mm, "Your mother and I have always respected each other. Mm. Like we, as human beings, as persons, we respect each other. And as long as you have that, it goes a long way." And I just thought, since I have marriage expert, you know, Dorothy Greco here, what do you think about his answer? It's okay if you disagree with my dad, but. <laughs> I mean, or if you'd have a better answer, but I mean, what, what, are you, what, what are your thoughts as I share that? Yeah, I guess maybe it's not so much a better answer. It's a different answer. Um, I think that he's right. I think that respect is hugely important. I think for us, the ways that we've talked about it is forgiveness has to be in place. Um, you know, really deep, profound, thorough forgiveness. Um, that's been central in our marriage. Uh, and, and alongside of that, obviously, confession. So we're very quick to confess confess our sins and not simply the obvious ones that the other person noticed, but the, you know, I've been resenting you for the past couple weeks and here's why and I apologize and I'm so sorry. Um, extending grace to each other. You know, again, as we age, boy, this grace thing is really important. Um, you know, in those moments when he doesn't remember that we had a conversation a week ago, and I feel like you've got to be kidding me. We sat at this table, and this is what we were eating, and and this is how you responded. But that doesn't help for me to say that. You know, what I need to do is be able to have grace and to say, yeah, this is only going to happen more as we age. Um, and then really working towards having and showing unconditional love towards each other. And again, you know, it's a lifelong process. I feel in some ways like I'm only just beginning when I, when I measure my, the ways that I love my husband against the ways that Jesus loves me or he loves the church. I think I'm never going to get there, 
But again, that's part of my telos is that I, I want to be able to love my husband fearlessly, consistently, and in a way that helps him to feel known and seen and valued. Um, so yeah, his answer was obviously more concise. Mine's a little bit wordier. <laughs> well, and I love, I love putting them all together. Yeah. And then yeah. I think, it, I think there is great, I mean, I've never actually forgotten that when he said that. Mm-hmm. And I, and life has kind of borne that out. I think the fact that Megan and I, we really do respect each mm-hmm. other. Like, like I would never not treat her well. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, and I kind of feel like friends of ours who've gotten divorced, I felt like at one point, one of them stopped respecting the other one. Uh, and, but yeah, but it's not the do all. There's all of those components of forgiveness and all that stuff. And respect, um, you know, if you really unpack that, when we don't respect somebody, chances are there's probably bitterness, there's resentment, there's unforgiveness. So he's seeing it as a, I think, as a big picture characteristic. But if we distill it or break it apart, then there's probably more components of it. Mm-hmm. You know, I think, um, I mean, like you with Greek and Latin, I love words. And I think I think respect comes from the Latin that means to look again. Mm. I think it means a, a, to to look another time, like see the person again. In and in, and um, I think the more we really see someone, the more we have that real respect. Yeah. For who they are, it's like when when someone feels unseen, or when I feel unseen somewhere, I feel like you kind of know it in your soul. Yeah. Um. So the uh, the producer of the podcast, who's the sound engineer who's listening right now to this, uh, he's been courting. That's, I love that word. He has a girlfriend <laughs> mm-hmm. and I, 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 whenever he and his girlfriend are around, I said, are you guys still courting? And they laugh at me. I just think it's a great word. It is. But as they're considering, you know, they're being, you know, their life together and potentially be getting married and they're thinking about that. What would you say to someone in his and her phase? In terms of advice, you mean? I guess. I think, um, you know, Christopher and I do a lot of premarital counseling, and I think we tend to go a little bit deeper than the typical, you know, here's th- here's how to think about in-laws, here's how to think about finances. Um, we talk a lot about expectations. What expectations are you coming into marriage with? And most of the time, we haven't really explored our expectations until the expectations get dashed and we feel disappointed. So that's always the place where we start is what are you expecting of each other? And that, you know, you can talk about that in so many different levels. What are you expecting of each other in terms of, are we both going to be able to work? Are we going to have kids? If we have kids, who's going to stay home? How many kids are we going to have? How many times are you expecting that we're going to have sex every week? I mean, it just goes on and on Mm -hmm. and on. And if we don't drill down into those things, then oftentimes we miss each other. So I think that that's one of the most important things that people can talk about is what are your expectations for marriage? And and then being able to say, oh, yeah, I think I can do that. Or, oh, my gosh, that is so totally outside of my league. I'm not sure that I could ever give that to you. Um, mm. So that's one of the things that I would say. And then just working on being able to have communication that's super honest that's um, honoring of the other person, right? Because we don't simply want to say every thought that comes through our minds, right? Just go to Twitter if you want that. Mm. Um, So being able to balance honesty with self-control, you know, that's key. And then Mm -hmm. I think paying attention to, are there any red flags? Um, Oftentimes, you know, when we're in the, the courting or the early romance phase, there's so many hormones coursing through our body that we, you know, they've done studies on this that have shown that we actually uh, become a little bit dumb 
and we miss some of the signals that we would normally see. So, you know, being able to try to step back at a little bit of objectivity, ask other people to speak in, hey, are there any things here that you see that might be problematic that we might be missing? I think those are all good um, metrics. And I'm sure with Mm. you as his father that he has probably done due diligence well, he, uh, I'm sure I'm annoying is what it is <laughs> that, that he has to put up with, <laughs> with a, a guy like me, uh, loves to ask questions, loves to, to get deep and, you know, talk through and so forth. Um, He'll appreciate but that's it. helpful, you know, cause I think a lot of, a lot of our listeners are, are, um, maybe in the age group that you and I are, Dorothy, I mean, we're having kids who are getting married mm-hmm. and, yep. um, and so we're, that's another phase for us, some of us boomer types that are you know, heading into that world, watching our kids get married and, um, and enter into that life and hope, hopefully give them some, some kind of wisdom. But, but your book is so full of so many great things. Um, and I just, I love the style. I love the honesty. Uh, I, I, it's just, it hits, you know, all the right notes for me, um, for what a book should be on, on a subject like that. And the subject, as we said, that isn't talked a lot about, at least for this, for that age group. And, so I highly recommend it to everyone. Dorothy Greco, Marriage in the Middle. Go out and get that book and um, work it through with your spouse. Great questions, great things to work on together. So Dorothy, this has been fascinating. Thank you for for being on the podcast with me. Yes, it was great, uh, as I expected it would be, because you're a very good interviewer and you ask great questions. So hopefully we'll be able to do it again sometime. Indeed. Well, I'm sure you'll be writing another book because you're you are a great writer and and um, are you in the middle of one? Are you writing something now or at the beginning of one? Maybe not the middle. Well, <laughs> I've been word? I've been kind of sitting on one for the past four years, to be honest with you. But now I just have to decide, do I have the fortitude? It's it's a pretty deep and um, difficult topic. So I'm just trying to discern, Lord, do you really want me to do this? And do I have it in me in this season to, mm. to go ahead? So. Well, I know writers, we're weird, man. We got We have to have a lot of self-discipline to. Yes, Went work through, be alone a lot, and, and live with our ideas for a long time. It's a crazy profession, but but uh, you do a great job, and I really appreciate you. And blessings on you and your ministry. Thank you very much, and to you as well. Well, I hope you enjoyed this Things Above conversation with Dorothy Greco. I did fascinating stuff. She is an expert on marriage, and that was just such good stuff. Well, I hope you join me next time. Until then, you can find me on Twitter and Facebook at James Brian Smith. And you can learn more about this podcast at ApprenticeInstitute.org. If you enjoyed this episode, please share with a friend. And you can also subscribe, which means you're going to get them automatically each week. My hope, as always, is that one day if you're asked, what's on your mind? Your answer will be, things above. <laughs>